If it were a movie, it would have turned out very differently. Because in nearly every movie, the music changes. And even though we know it's tense and things are not great, we know that in the end, the music's going to change and everything is going to be okay. But life doesn't always turn out that way. Life isn't always like the movies. And so this is a real story. A few years ago, there was a middle-aged couple driving through the mountains. And what was only described as a freak blizzard came upon the road that they were on. It snowed so hard that they actually had to stop the car. They could, just simply could not go any farther. And cars all around them had to do the same. The snow began to pile up on their car. And they had a couple of choices, as you can already begin to roll in your mind. What, what would you have done? And they decided to try to wait it out. I said if this was a movie, everything would have been okay. But later they were found. No longer living. A little note had been scratched by the wife in her own handwriting, laid in the middle of the car. And people believe, who, who came to the car, that she probably wrote it in her last moments. And it said, I don't want to die this way. That's tragic enough. But here's what's even more tragic. Less than six feet from where their car was, was a bus waiting out the same blizzard in which every single person survived. They don't know why. Some suggest it simply had more gasoline, could run longer. Some suggest it was nothing more than, than there was a lot of people in there and the body heat kept them alive. They're not 100% sure why. Because people were hurt. They, they were suffering there, but they didn't die. And we hear stories like that, and it makes our mind think, if I had been in that car, what would I have done? Would I have just given up? Would I have tried to weigh it out? Or even though if I couldn't see, because it was a literal blizzard, you could barely see in front of you, would I have tried to get out of the car and just wander around? See if I could run into another car, or maybe run into a bus, or maybe run into a semi or something to find someone. who What, what would I have, have done? Stories like that captivate our minds because they really make us think. They put us in a situation that we probably will never literally face, but because there's so much humanity in it, we can still put ourselves in there emotionally and begin to think through, what would I have done? Stories of near survival, or in that case, non-survival, captivate our mind. But they don't make too many movies about those, do they? Because we like stories of actual survival. Stories where that car is being piled up with snow or maybe the couple has gotten out of the car and maybe they are, they're wandering through the blinding snow together hanging on to one another for dear life and all of a sudden the music changes and they stumble across a warm vehicle or a helicopter spots them and everything turns out okay. Why do we love stories like that so much? Because they're stories of salvation. They're stories where it seems against all odds that the good ends up with ends up happening. Open your Bibles again, or on your tablet, or your phone, or your laptop, whatever you got with you, your Kindle, I don't care, whatever, to, to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you will open your Bible this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, those ten verses that Will read for us a few moments ago, you will have the verses that we're not only going to study this morning, but we're going to study them next Sunday morning, and the next Sunday morning. There is so much to be found in these ten verses that I did not want to just survey them. I wanted to dig down through them to consider the idea of salvation from three angles. 
This morning, we're going to think about what it is we were saved from. Next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we're going to think about what it is we are saved by. And then the next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll consider what we are saved to be or to become. All of that is discussed in these ten verses. In fact, there's more there than those three things. But I didn't want to just mention those three in one sermon. I want to dig down into each one of them because they provide for us, in many ways, one of the fullest pictures in Scripture in a short amount of verses of how glorious salvation really is. And one of the things we must remember is, to be saved, we are saved from something. That couple wanted to be saved from the snowstorm, the blizzard. They weren't. Had it been a movie, they would have been. You've read books and watched movies, and you always remember not just that someone was rescued or saved, but what it was they were rescued or saved from. That's just part of the story. That's just part of what builds it in our minds and and encapsulates it in our thinking. And as Paul opens Ephesians chapter 2, he gives for us several things that if we are Christians, we were saved from. And if you are not a Christian, things from which you need to be saved. Looking at these things this morning, will help us in a couple of ways. One, if we are a Christian, it will give us a greater gratitude for God. Each one of us, when we, if we're Christians, we became Christians, we were thankful for it. But even if we've been Christians for decades, looking back on when we were saved by the blood of Christ, we grow in our gratitude for that because we realize just how awful sin really is. But also, studying this this morning will help us to be motivated to either become Christians or to reach out to those who are not Christians. Because being reminded of the state in which someone outside of Christ is should be one of the greatest motivating factors we have in helping people come to Jesus Christ. There are six things, really maybe seven, I'm going to combine a couple this morning, but there are six things found in the first three verses that we were saved from. And I don't want you this morning to try to memorize the list necessarily, even though that's a, that's a good thing. The power of this list is not found in each individual thing. It's found in the totality of the list. Notice them with me this morning. We were saved, first of all, from death. Paul begins the chapter with a very powerful phrase, you were dead. Now, obviously, there are people physically reading these words, so he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. And you know as well as I do that the word death basically just means a separation. James talks about faith without works is dead just like the body without the spirit is dead. That's what physical death really is, is when the spirit or the soul leaves the body. There's a separation there. In fact, the word for death found here in Ephesians chapter 2 is a word that literally means a corpse. Spiritually speaking, Before one becomes a Christian, they are a corpse. It's not a very positive thing to think about, but that's exactly what Paul is saying. They are spiritually dead. Why? Because of what Isaiah 59 tells us. Isaiah 59 verse 1 tells us that God will save. But then verse 2 says, Your sins and your iniquities have separated you from your God. Notice the emphasis that Isaiah writes there in, those, in that verse. He does not say that if we are dead in our, in our sins, it's because of something God has done. It is never God's fault. He says, your sins, your iniquities, have separated you from God. Implied in that, and important for all of us to remember is this, even though we don't want to think about it, it's true. 
Sin is my choice. Sin is my choice. Isaiah is saying, whether you realize it or not, when you sin, you are choosing to set up a barrier between yourself and God. You have separated yourself from God. If there is a separation, simply by definition, there is a death. And Paul says to these Christians in in Ephesus that you were dead. That separation that's there is because God will not look upon sin. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, talking to God, said, You who who are of purer eyes than to look upon or than to see evil. God doesn't look upon it. That's why when you see Jesus on the cross and Jesus is carrying all the sin of all time, of every person who had lived before Him, was living right then, or would ever live as long as the world stands, figuratively speaking, God turned His face. Because He won't look upon sin. He can't look at iniquity. When we sin, we are choosing to put that barrier up. We are choosing to be a corpse. Spiritually speaking. If you're a Christian this morning, aren't you thankful? I wish I was smart enough to have come up with this statement. Thankfully, I'm smart enough to remember it. (laughs) I wish I'd been smart enough to originate it. But it's been said that Jesus did not come to make sick people well. He came to make dead people live. And that's why He's the great physician. You see, physicians can make sick people well. Nobody can make dead people live except Jesus Christ. We were saved from death. We were also saved, Paul says, from trespasses. This is a word that we we still use in our common language, mostly on signs. The, the, The word here literally means to fall beside, and it carries with it the idea of a boundary. There's a boundary out there. Now, that goes against the way our world likes to think. We don't don't like boundaries very much, do we? We don't like those things that that hem us in. We don't like to think that there's certain things out there, certain lines that we are not to cross. But we still use this word. You might see it on a a gate or a fence or a tree or something. No trespassing. I I was holding a gospel meeting one time. And uh, the preacher and I were doing some visiting, and uh, we went to visit an elderly couple. And he said, I'm going to take you to visit them because they need to be visited. But he said, I'm also taking you there because you have got to see the yard across the street. And I thought, what in the world is he talking about? What am I getting ready to see here? We made our visit, and we got back in the car, and we turned the car around. You were facing a place that looked kind of scary, frankly. Had a fence around it that I was not tempted to cross anyway. But I for sure was not tempted to cross it when there was a, a hand-painted, you can't buy this one at Walmart, okay, a hand-painted sign on a piece of plywood that said, no trespassing, virus-carrying dog on other side of fence. They'd have to worry about me knocking on the door. I guarantee, no problem whatsoever. I don't know what virus that dog had or if they even had a dog. I didn't care. I, I, I wasn't about to cross the line. But we, we understand the concept. But in our culture, we sure don't like the idea, do we? There's something we need to always remember. And that is, that is when God, <clears throat> excuse me, when God sets boundaries for us, it is always for our ultimate good. We may not see it in the moment. And that's not to say that, that sin, choosing to sin or choosing to trespass, has no enjoyment to it. That's why it's tempting, Right? Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 talks about the pleasures of sin. 
But I left out something, didn't I? The passing pleasures of sin. Or the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin is tempting because there is an enjoyment attached with it. But we only see the short term. We only see the immediate. God says, if you will stay within my boundaries, not everything's going to be perfect all the time, but long term, ultimately, eternally, things will go well with you. Sin is a choice to cross over that line. It is a trespass against God. But Paul says, you are saved from that. Even though you stepped over that line, God was willing to bring you back. He also says, we were saved from sin. This is the most common word we use, of course. And this is the word that literally means to miss the mark. You've probably heard it defined that way before. It reminds us that there is a mark to be reached, a target to be hit, if you want to think of it that way. And yet we, we don't hit it when we sin. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul also said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You put those two pictures together, and you kind of get the idea of what Paul has in mind here. That there is a target to hit, but not only am I missing it, I can't get to it. I just keep falling short of that because the target's perfection. The target is living a, a perfect Christ-like life. And I simply cannot reach that target. And some people hear that and they think, well, nobody's perfect. And their, their takeaway from that is, then I'll just do whatever I want to do. After all, nobody can hit the target of perfection. Nobody's perfect. What the Bible tries to get us to see is, even though I on my own cannot reach that target of perfection, that if I will do my best to keep aiming towards it, Christ will make up the difference. A couple of years ago, I'm glad he's not here this morning to hear the story. I wish he was here because I'm missing. But uh, we bought Turner a bow and arrow set. And some of you all have done that for your kids or grandkids before. Hey, he not, he's not really a sports guy, but he kind of saw somebody do that. That'll be fun. So I said, sure, why not? And a little bow and arrow set, a little target in the front yard. Folks, people in the next zip code were running. It was dangerous to be in the state of Tennessee. There's no telling where these arrows were going to go. Above, below. He shot some in the ground right. I thought I was going to take his own toes off. It was unbelievable. They were all over the place. Until he practiced. And he doesn't like to do it anymore. He kind of went through a phase. He liked it for a while. doesn't like it anymore. But very quickly, it became where I actually didn't mind standing somewhat in front of him. It was a little, not directly in front of him, but at least off to the side. Because at least I knew they were going to go in the general direction of the target. And then eventually, he started to hit the target. And hit the target more. That's exactly the idea behind what we are saved from. We miss the target, but Christ makes up the difference. He helps us move closer. If you're a Christian, you were saved from missing the target. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to feel like you're never going to hit it again. Let Christ help you move closer. You were saved from sins. Paul also says, you were saved from the course, the direction of the world. Verse 2, Paul writes that Christians once walked in those trespasses and sins, and then he says, we were following the course of this world. When we're sinning, it's obvious we're not following the course or the way of God. The word or the phrase, the world, is used several ways in Scripture. You know that. It's used sometimes just to describe the planet. Sometimes it's used to describe mankind in general. But here it's used to describe the sinful ways of mankind. The divine commentary on this is found in 1 John chapter 2 where you see the two words, the world, a zillion times, it seems like, in three verses. All that is in 
the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust thereof. John there is saying, every single thing in the world is not bad. Trees are not bad. Grass is not bad. Rocks are not bad. But if you look around at the world as people, you're going to see more that is wrong than is right in the eyes of God. And so he used in the phrase, the world, to describe that way of living. And Paul says here, before we came to Christ, that's the direction, the course that we were following. We were walking in that direction that the world seems to walk. That's what we have in Ephesians chapter 2. When we are choosing to sin, we're not really choosing our own path. We're not really as independent as we might like to think we are. Instead, we're choosing to follow the way, the ways of the world. We're still following a path, but it's not the path of God. I want to point out here as well that at the end of verse 3, Paul says that this world is filled with children of wrath, and that's like the rest of mankind. When we choose to sin, we choose to follow the world's direction, that's the course we're following. You ever wondered why the world in which we live seems to just be so angry all the time? I mean, there's a lot of good people in the world, but overall, I mean, we get scared sometimes just driving down the road because of how people might act. It's just an anger. It's exactly what Paul is writing about here. As the world grows coarser in sin, anger builds up. Wrath is a part of sin. If you don't believe me, just think about the wars, the culture wars we're fighting in our country right now. Everybody should just be happy. Everybody should be tolerant. Everybody should just be acceptable. Don't judge anybody. Those are the happiest people in the world until you disagree with them. Am I right? Because if you disagree with them, this comes out. Wrath, like the sons of disobedience. Because sin cannot hide itself behind just a happy face all the time. The course of this world is deeper and deeper anger and wrath. Before Christ, that's the direction we are walking. With Christ, we walk in the light, as He is in the light. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Tied to that also, Paul says that you were saved from Satan's influence. And that's not the best way of wording it. Even when we're Christians, Satan is still influential in that he still tempts us. Maybe I should put it this way. We're saved from being a master to Satan's influence. That's probably a better way of putting it. But just for the sake of make, keeping it shorter, I just chose those, those two words. Paul says that we're following and we're sinning the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And here's why I told you there are probably seven. I'm not going to take disobedience as its own. I'm going to tie it here with following Satan's influence. This is maybe the most unique description of Satan found anywhere in the Bible. The prince of the power of the air. That's a, that's a hard one to get our mind around. In John chapter 14 and verse 30, Satan is described as the prince of this world. We can understand that one. But the prince of the power of the air is a pretty weird description. Scholars disagree as to the origin of this picture, but they're almost universal in what it means, the application of it. What they believe Paul is basically saying here is, since the world is filled with so much sin, so much that's wrong, it is as if... Satan's influence is just out there in the air. It's almost as if we're just breathing it in just by walking around. 
If you want to think of it this way, it's almost as if when it rains, Satan is raining influence down. That, that's kind of the picture. He is the prince of the power of the air. It's almost as if he just controls it all. We know he doesn't, but it seems that way because of how difficult and, and dangerous and sinful the world is. But notice that Paul says that that spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the influence of Satan. There's no doubt that Satan still works. He still has influence. And he influences so well that there are some who are as if it were his own children. It's not a pleasant concept. But that's the way it is. When you are outside of Christ, you are not just living your own life. When one is not a Christian, they're not just living any old way they want to live. They're really living under the influence of Satan. They are, to borrow from this picture, basically breathing His air. It's a scary thought. We may think we're walking our own way. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, verse 14, that those before they were Christians were walking in your former ignorance. I didn't know I was following Satan necessarily. I didn't know he had you know, control over me. Not that I couldn't make choices, but I didn't really realize I was, I was following Satan. But if I'm not following God, who am I following? Whether I know it or not, I'm following the influence of Satan. Whether I'm actually following Satan or not. As Christians, we don't like to think about that that's the way we were, but that's the way it was. If you're not a Christian, you may push very much against that. I don't follow Satan. It's not like I'm, I'm, not, a, you know, I'm, I'm not a Satanist religion or something like that. No, but if you're not following God, there's only one other option. And that is you're following the ways, at least the influence of Satan. Number six, we're saved from selfishness. There is a selfish component to sin, even though it's not really our own uh, way of doing things or really following someone else. It appeals to us because of selfishness. And so Paul writes in verse 3 that sin is when we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We're filling our minds with things and our bodies with sinful ideas and then we show no restraint we give in to those things out of selfish desires here is where it's so difficult for people to turn away and here's why it's so hard to reach people to help them turn away we like that we think we're being independent i know yesterday was independence day i'm not talking about a national thing i'm talking about a personal thing we like to get to do what, what we want to do. There is a selfishness about us. And certainly, we don't like to admit that some choice we have made was unwise. And certainly, we don't want to admit that some choice we made was actually wrong. It's my life. Nobody's going to tell me how to live it. That's the very basis of every single sin. It's selfishness. Why did Adam and Eve choose to eat that fruit in the Garden of Eden? You boil it all down, it's really because what it would have done for them, what they thought it would have done for them. Why did David choose to commit adultery with Bathsheba? You boil it all down, it's because it's what he wanted. We could name any sin we possibly could found in Scripture and say, if you boil it all down, why did someone choose to do this? Or why did someone choose to avoid what God had said? And you boil it all down, the simple fact is, they chose what they wanted to do. The selfish component to it. But it's not just people in Bible times. You think about any sin that we could commit now. It's the same thing. Why would someone choose to dress immodestly? It's my body. I'll wear what I want to wear. Why would someone choose 
to, to forsake the assembling. It's my day. I'll do what I want to do. We may not say those things. I'm not picking on those two sins. I'm, I'm saying that those represent any sin we possibly could choose. We may not literally say those things, but at the root of the decision, that's what it is. It's nothing more than selfishness. As a common denominator, I get to do things my own way, I think. Nobody else is going to choose me what to do. Listen, selfishness is the very opposite of Christianity. If I am a Christian, I wear the name of Christ. And Mark chapter 10 tells me that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life or give Himself as a ransom for many. Selfishness is the opposite end of the spectrum from following Christ. But aren't you amazed that God would save us even from that? That every time I choose to sin, I'm choosing me over Him, and yet He says, I still want you back. I still want you to be saved. And there's always going to be that temptation to do what I want. That's why Christians still are tempted. That's why Christians still sin. We're always going to fight against that, that temptation. But God says, I'll forgive you because I want to conform you more and more into the will of my Son. And I told you, if you want to memorize that list, that's fine. But look at the totality of the list. Before Christianity, before we were in Christ, if you are a Christian, this is what I was. And God would save me from that. What an amazing God. I know it's not popular to, to, to preach on these things. I don't think popular to use the word sin in our world, right? We don't like to talk about specific things like that. But it was a wise preacher one time who was speaking in Australia on a little preaching tour. And he had a speaking engagement one day in front of a group of teenagers. And they didn't give him any topics, so he just preached on whatever he wanted to. And he actually preached a sermon on, on sin. You know, that's kind of an odd topic for a youth rally, I guess, or whatever it was. That's what he chose to do. And after the, after the speaking engagement, he was in one of the offices, and, and they were just absolutely jumping all over him. I, I can't believe you would speak on something like that, because you're going to talk about it. It's going to make the kids go on and do it. Right? That's, 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 that's the reaction. This wise preacher reached over into a cabinet he knew was in the office, and he pulled out a bottle. And on the bottle, the top line said strychnine. The bottom line said poison. And he looked at those who were castigating him, and he said, do you, do you know what you're asking me to do? <laughs> he said, you're asking me to change the label. He said, what if I were to take the same bottle and over the top of that label put essence of peppermint? One of those same children would come in here, see that, drink it, and every one of us knows what would happen. And then he looked at them and said, I will never change the label. You see, it may not be popular to talk about sin, to talk about trespasses, to talk about following Satan. That's not popular. I don't enjoy preaching on it, quite frankly. But God's Word does not give me the right to change the label. And as a follower of Christ, when I see those things, it makes me more grateful for what God saved me from. 
it makes me, as I live longer, even more grateful to realize, why would God ever, ever choose to allow me even the chance to be saved from those things? If you're not a Christian this morning, I'm not going to change the label. But I'm going to ask you, are you willing to allow God to save you? Are you willing to say, I need salvation? God has said that if you'll come to Him in faith, if you'll turn from those sins, if you'll confess the name of His Son, and if you'll be baptized, immersed in water, that will be for the forgiveness of your sins. The death, the trespasses, the sins, following the course of the world, being under the influence of Satan, and your selfishness are no more. What a great God. And He's the one who invites you. He's the one who invites you as a Christian who may be saying, I've been walking a way that's kind of my own way and I want to walk His way again. I want to get back in the light. Walk in the light. He's a great God because He'll forgive you. It is He who invites you. It's He who loves you. It's He who will save you. If you'll come to Him, we stand and sing to encourage you.